Welcome back to your favorite contracts podcast. I'm Tess Wilkinson-Ryan, and I'm here with my colleague, Dave Hoffman. Today, we're talking about why the Connecticut Fair Association wanted to break their promise to Babyland Amusements in 1918. Let's get started. The time is 1918. The place is Connecticut. The disease is infant paralysis. Is this polio? Yes. Okay. So there's a polio outbreak and what? Very, a very famous 1916 polio outbreak, which predated the 1918 Spanish flu, which just tells you it was bad times. Bad times in there. Yeah. A lot of right. contagious disease issues. Yes. So, okay. So the, the plaintiff here is the runner, the the putter on of baby shows. Babyland Amusement Company. Not really, right? Yeah, no, really, that's their name. Babyland Amusement Company. Get out, okay, awesome. I, can't, I cannot get out, this case is amazing. <laughs> amazing, and I want you to know that this case is going to be in the next edition of the Hillman Hoffman Casebook. Whoa. It has been out of casebooks, so far as I can tell, for 50 years, and I am bringing Babyland <laughs> Amusement Company back. All right, so Babyland Amusement is sort of like the artist. Yes. And Connecticut Fair Association, is that what they're called? I already forgot. Yeah. Is like the gallery. Yes. Sure. And the gallery says... Wait, wait no, wait, wait. Before we get there, aren't you going to ask like, questions about the case? No, oh, doing so, no, I'm about to. I'm about to. Oh, okay. okay. But, but I feel like you're, you're talking about like gallery and the artist. Can we not just say Babyland Amusement Company more times? Well, this, but see, here's my problem is I don't actually get who, like, who makes money how is part, of my, is part of my issue with the facts. Okay. Because the, the, the gallery cancels the deal. All right. Yeah, yes, that's true. Okay. So, so Babyland Amusement Company is in the business of going, as I understand it, town to town and organizing baby shows, which... It took me a while to really fully process what that meant, but I believe what it means is they basically advertise in the community for babies. Yes. And they then have contests in which the babies are ordinarily ranked on a variety of metrics from cutest to fattest to best disposition to best brother and sister to, of course, best overall baby which it's amazing. If you read newspapers from the 1920s and 1930s, you will, and you do a Google search, you'll find Babyland Amusement Company advertisements and also reports of the, of the, of the baby competition in which, you know, Mr. and Mrs. Smith are very happy to report that they won best dimple for their Matilda. And that's, it's a great part of American, the American experience that's lost today, I guess. You mean that we don't put babies into pageants and then judge them on things? No, we do. Of course, we, we still do, do have baby pageants, but we don't have it on a traveling basis. <laughs> yeah, the tra- I, I see what you're saying. The traveling feels like the key fact here. Yeah. I have more to say about what was probably going on in these baby pageants 
I really look forward to hearing your, your, your anti-Babyland. Okay, but for now, mm-hmm. Babyland wants to come and basically use space at... A fair, at, at a, a fair. fair. I think they're going to be part of the exhibition at the fair. Right, but the interesting thing here is it was the fairground that was supposed to pay them. Presumably because the fairground takes a ticket at the gate. Right, right. And, and the fairground is basically having a bunch of acts and they pay the axe to come, and then the, the fairground gets the profit yes. um, from, from, the, from the gate revenue. Right, okay. But then we have an, an outbreak of polio, which is particularly um, bad for babies. Yes, yes, <laughs> yes, yes. Infantile paralysis is, in fact, particularly bad for infants. Yes. And so the fair says, don't bring your babies here. Yes. And Babyland Amusement Park says, I mean, amusement company says, you're in breach of contract. I, I think probably they say, well, how about if you just pay us? How about, we don't have to bring our babies. As a matter of fact, we don't even like them that much. You know, after you've seen <laughs> you know like how one. hard it is? You know how hard it is to get 120 babies in this room? And also, like, you have to pretend like those babies are attractive. So, like, it's exhausting to be a purveyor of babies, as everyone understands. And so, presumably, Babyland is like, you know, dude, we don't want to actually provide the babies. What we would like is the money. We would like to be paid our, uh, I don't know what it is, like $100? How much is it? Six hundred. Six hundred dollars. By the way, that's a lot of money. All right, we would like to be paid our enormous sum of money for organizing the babies, but we don't have to come and show up with babies. Just, just cash us out. All right. And, and the fair says, "We this is are. Dangerous. This is dangerous. This is terrible." Okay. First of all, because we are currently basically isolating in our own homes. Yes. You and I, and probably our listeners, feel pretty familiar with the um, context of a public health situation in which you're not supposed to have 120 babies in a room, right? Yes, <laughs> yes. So why yes. I, I would just, say that. Why is this not just an impracticability case? Why? So what, what is the state's involvement here? I'm, I'm a, I'm, impracticability is a funny term because of course ordinarily the order of the semester depends on when you took contracts from from whom and what in what book but impracticability often is going to come late in the course yeah. for, for most people impracticability is a doctrine that says if the costs of performance go way up then the person who is supposed to perform can sometimes say after con- after formation so like you're take you're supposed to deliver oil on a long distance trip and the, and the canal through which you're supposed to deliver oil closes and you have to go around the Cape of Good Hope or the, whatever the what? case, case. You, you have to take a longer trip. I want to make it kind of a smaller point. Now we're around the Cape of Good Hope. <laughs> you, can, saying, are, you, can, you can say you don't have to perform because it suddenly was much more expensive. I'm just saying you, there's an odd missing fact here. From our, from but no, there's no, there's no missing fact. I mean, the, the fair, the fair does not, the, the, the cost of performance for the fair has not gone up. It's still the same $600. Right, but that's because my point here is that the state has not said anything, right? When I read this case, I kept being like, what is the state oh. doing? Why, oh, no. like, why isn't yeah, it just yeah. possible or impractical? Because the state has said, you guys can't have a fair? 
It's a polio epidemic. Well, it wouldn't be impractical if the state did that, and it wouldn't be impossible either. I mean, it would be a public policy. It would no matter if the if the state says no, that is not how it will. That is, you don't read. If you have a contract, to David's <laughs> shaking his head. I don't. If you, have a if you have a contract, literally with, Lloyd versus Murphy. I have no idea what that is. Is, is that is that a case, or is that just two names you pulled out of a hat? <laughs> Those are both British-sounding names, and I was they hoping you know. No, Lloyd versus Murphy, where the where, you must, where okay, fine. It's Barnabas versus Saint John. It, it's, it's Barnaby versus Caleb in the Jasper Court of. Those are all my family members. Okay, the, no, it's 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 a. It's either impossibility or impracticable. And the claim is we rented this, the, the claim is from someone who's going to sell cars. We rented this, this lot to sell cars from. And now because it's World War II, we can't sell these cars because there's a rule against selling new cars. We can't use like steel that way. That's a frustration argument. Oh, maybe that's right. Frustration. Yeah, purpose. that's a frustration yeah. of purpose argument. So ordinarily, if the government says that the performance is no longer legal, um, so it's an illegal contract. Purposes? No, no, it's not. It's public policy. It's just, it, it, it may not, you can't enforce a contract that is illegal. And so if the government here had said you can't have gatherings of more than five babies at a time, so that really puts a cap on, on some family activities, you can't have gatherings of more than five babies because of the polio academic, it would be a public policy argument driven by the state regulation, super clear, what, super clear that the answer would be you don't have to perform. It would still be unclear, and this is sort of what the case is about, whether or not you have to pay simply because, you, I mean, everyone agrees the contract doesn't go forward, but the question is whether you have to pay. So there's two issues in the case here. One of them is in the absence of a state act, and there's apparently no act, yep. can a court through a jury say this contract is void because it threatens the public health? Yes. And two, having said that, or with that in mind, can the court say, actually, even though all you have to do is pay fair, you don't have to pay because the underlying subject matter is now prohibited? And one could imagine different answers to those questions. And of course, contract doctrine, I, I mean, I, as you said, I just wrote an article about this in which I think the answer should be aligned. Um, but you could imagine different answers. How about Paradigm versus Jane? I don't think this is a. All right. Yeah. I don't think, though, I'm going to be alone as a reader of the case. Yeah. In thinking that it's funny that the parties themselves are fighting it out about the public health question here. Yeah. Right. Like, actually, the whole thing would be pretty different if the state had said, "You can't hold this. You there. There may be no fares." Yes, so, sort of it'd be a little bit different. So there is a whole line of cases in which school districts in the 1870s, 1880s, and 1890s were basically closing school because of epidemics of various kinds, cholera, um, uh, yellow fever, uh, diphtheria, uh, various influenzas. And under some circumstances, the schools did so because the board was worried, the school, local school board was worried. In some circumstances, they did so because the local government said, we think you should close. In some cases, they did so because the state, the, the state authorities said you can close. And, and in all cases, the teachers sued, saying, 
yeah, why is it my fault that school is closed? I should get paid. Yeah. And courts have really, sometimes have really different answers depending on what level of the government that decision was made. Sometimes they say, look, if the school board had it under their control, they don't get to unilaterally declare there's a health emergency, only the state does. And sometimes they said, well, you know, we should defer, we, we should encourage people to behave in, in sort of health-promoting ways. And so if they close, they don't have to pay. Here, it's, it's, there's no question but that the state hadn't acted. Now, it could be because polio was a very fast-acting epidemic and it had never been seen before in the country. So 1916 is the first big polio oh, outbreak. Really? It was the first big polio outbreak. Um, and it, and, the, and it's, if you look at sort of the history of polio, the, um, this particular Connecticut location sort of like the first terrifying one that people are sort of aware of. And so the state just didn't move fast enough. And you can think of the fair association as sort of like a good Samaritan, you know, I'm going to act even though the government hasn't acted. Now, I guess I'd say, and I don't want to get too much in the weeds because we're going to do it later, but like, of course you're right. Like Nate, uh, Nate Oman, who's a professor at William Mary, who we both know when he read my paper said, this would be totally different if the state had done something. Um, it's much more legitimate if we're reacting to state action than if the parties take it into their own hands. I actually don't agree with him at all, um, but that some people will have that intuition. I mean, but just, even, to, but just yeah. um, I feel like one, before we get in the weeds, I want to make sure we understand. Like the, the facts are that the, the Fair Association says you can't hold, you can't bring your babies here, and we're not going to pay you. And the suit is not to compel the Fair Association yeah. to, of course, hold the baby fair, which you could have imagined. Um, I mean, well, for example, right now, the Republican right. Party of Texas right. is suing yeah. a convention center saying we should have the right to have the Republican convention. Right. That would be convention. a world where there was some in which the, they were, what they wanted to do was to basically prove profits that they couldn't or that they wanted to prove that they're or prove that for some reason they want they, they were super invested in holding the actual. Right. So, right. So like the, the, the Republican convention, people say, look, we need yeah. to have this thing in person because this is the way we do our political activity. Yeah. And here, you could imagine some circumstance where they were like, we're trying to build a business here. If we don't have a baby fair, we're not going to be able to, you know, showcase yeah. our goods. And so, but they're, they're not, they don't say that. All they want is their money. And so they sue for the money that they would have gotten, they would have made their contract price. And the court basically, and so this is going to be a very unfamiliar case to all of you since none of you have read it, um, except for the people in the course to whom it's assigned. It's not, it's not, it is not a famous case. And, and like I said, it's basically not been taught for, for 70 years because epidemics were thought to be, you know, not that important. Um, uh, so uh, not a famous case. The court says, the majority says, ah, we're not paying, we're not going to give damages for the breach of a contract. And so they've got a, a great line, which I really have now written and written about so much. Um, the court will not require the performance or award damages for a breach of a contract in which the public has such so great an interest in the preservation of health if the health is in fact endangered any more than it require one to be performed of the tendency of which was to immoral or which interfere with the right of everyone to earn a livelihood by lawful occupation uh, and so they basically say we are not going to award damages if the underlying contract hurts the public health and then there's a there's a dissent in the case um, which basically says what you said which is i don't think that private parties should have the right to decide what's in the public's best interest. That if this was a real deal, the government could have said it was illegal, and if the government said it was illegal, everything follows. But the, the dissent and the majority disagree about whether or not individual private parties should have the, the right obligation or privilege of walking away from a contract if the contract's consequences to, to cause an you know, epidemic. Um, and so 
when I first saw the case, um, I was like, oh my God, this is the most relevant case to our lives today, you can imagine. Um, and um, so I'm happy to be talking about it today. So that's the, that's the setup. The court makes, the court suggests that it's possible that the, that Babyland can come back with some information about how they are going to do social distancing. Yes? Where is that? Hang on. So I think you're saying the allegation the baby show would be dangerous to the public health might be avoided by the plaintiff, which is to say Babyland could argue yes. that effectual provisions had been taken that yes. prevent communication of the disease from yes. one child to the other yes. by setting up any other fact. Yes. So Babyland, um, Babyland could, I, I guess, come back and say, we had the babies more than six feet from each other, um, even yeah. when we were weighing them in the, you know, the fattest baby scale. This court is now considering the sufficiency of an allegation, not how that allegation can be proved. The allegation that the baby show would be dangerous to public health might be avoided by the plaintiff by alleging, if such is the fact, that effectual precautions had been taken to prevent the communication of the disease from one child to another, or by setting up any other fact making it clear that no harm could result to the public from the show. Yep. The court cannot regard the averment that the assemblage of a number of children as proposed would be highly dangerous to public health, right. other than as a fact that the plaintiff must answer. Can you just explain where we are procedurally then? Like, so, are they suggesting that this might happen? So, I mean, I think, I think the defense, the, the fair says this was going to be bad for the public. And on the procedural posture they're at, we're going to have to take that as true. It might be the case that, in, in fact, it wasn't going to be bad for the public or that, that Babyland was going to have, you know, hazmat suits for the babies. Um, and, 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 and if that was true, then it, I, I mean, I do think they're going to have a, a factual dispute about really whether gatherings of people would gatherings of babies would be would be more likely or not to spread infantile paralysis. Now, it's kind of hard. I mean, they're going to use factual experts. They'll call Dr. Fauci. He probably was alive back then, um, and you know he'll get up there and testify. You know, look, having more than one baby in a room is a danger to the the body politic. Okay. So here we are assuming it's going to be highly dangerous. Mm -hmm. And the question is why baby shows are different, or at least one question is why baby shows are different than schools. No? Uh, I mean, what the, the, the court says, we can see a world in which we pay the teachers. Yep. Right? And all you're asking for is the money. We get that. We're yep. not saying we'd make school districts hold classes, but we yep. are saying we might make the districts pay the teachers. We might. And, and we sometimes might. they did. And sometimes, and sometimes did. we did. But here we're not going to make the baby shows. We're not going to make, uh, make the fair pay the baby show. And I think that the court think that, thinks there's something really different going on here. There is a difference between a contract to teach school and one to promote and manage a baby show. Teaching proper subjects can never be unlawful or contrary to public policy, though the, again, assemblage, assemblage, um, of a number of children in one room might become very harmful. The teacher has no control over the attendance. The baby show, however, would be highly dangerous to the health. It doesn't make tons of sense because presumably, well, that's, yeah. 
I mean, I think at some level they're basically saying that going to school is a more important thing yeah. than having a baby show, which is hard to imagine. But that's that is that is kind of their their argument is that is that we're going to promote. I mean, at, at some level, it's basically like the when you have to cancel school, the teachers are innocent parties to that decision, and they're not as able to bear the risk of that choice as the school district is. So the school district has to pay the the, the, the teachers. A bad thing happens and we have to allocate loss. Here, the parties are coming together to create a profit and now there's no profit to be had and should we transfer money from the fair to the baby land? Nah, let's leave things where they lie. You know, we sort of just leave everyone where they are because the underlying thing they're doing is kind of silly. Which is kind of interesting, and it, and it may be that Babyland was entirely silly, but in part, these baby fairs were apparently uh, sometimes leveraged as a public health uh, function. So the idea was you could use them to collect tons of data on babies, and thus to sort of do things like start to promote, start to, to, to make a growth chart, make a growth chart curve, right? It's a way of getting babies to doc to see medical professionals and to sort of nurses, et cetera, who are measuring them and stuff. And so apparently um, was, a, was a real push at Better Babies. Better Babies was a push by the Women's Home better, Companion. Better Babies? What do you have in mind? What do you think was really going on? <laughs> Listen, things are complicated. Mm-hmm. It's a story that's both about access to um, medical care, health care, health care. Baby shows, starting, I think, with the with P.T. Barnum, always had a flavor of eugenics to them. One of the ways, one of the things one can do in a pageant like these is to articulate norms of beauty and health that are highly... Contentious. No, maybe not contentious. I mean, is your sort of view that like the Gerber baby was the winner of the tournament of baby shows? Is that the is that the claim here? That's a that's a that'd be best case. That's the least thing I might say. Um, I mean, the Barnum the Barnum baby shows specifically were about you know excluding babies who who uh, didn't look the right way, right? So. There's a lot happening in the case that's kind of hard to figure out. I mean, not exactly to figure out, but partly the case, unlike some old cases, it suddenly feels extremely on the nose and modern. You know, the the talk about basically you should be able to think about third-party health risk, and you should. I mean, impliedly, they're basically saying it's good for the Fair Association to be thinking about this stuff feels like extremely of the moment. And the idea that like the trial could be about whether they took the right social distancing measures is also like so um, salient to us that it's hard to, to avoid thinking, oh my God, this case is exactly the case for today. On the other hand, actually the social strata and context here is impossible for us to understand. Like what yeah. the fuck? Like what was, excuse my language, I thought this is a family-friendly family, family friendly thing. <laughs> Cut it back later. But like, 
the eugenics episode is not our most family friendly. No, no, no the eugenics <laughs> is not. That's exactly right. Um, so, uh, what the heck was going on? Where there's a fair? Which, is it is it really maybe a circus? Is it really a carnival? Like, do we know what the fair is? You know, what are the other acts at the fair? And what does it look like to be in 1916 in Connecticut when this thing is happening? What really actually is the reason that they they bailed on the enterprise? You know, is it that they were fr- they were thinking actually no one's going to show up? And so we might as well try to avoid having to pay six hundred dollars. Um, and and so because the whole thing is going to not going to work out, you know, it does seem when people want in some ways to go forward with activities that seem insane, like having a baby show in the middle of a polio epidemic, yeah. you have to say to yourself, like maybe there's something we don't know. Like, you know, maybe the baby land is having some backstory that we're just not aware about that aware of um but that like what the case invites is the case invites us to say what's the limiting principle here like our party should parties always be able to escape their obligation so ordinarily public policy is at the time you enter into the contract you can't say we're going to do things that are bad for the public. You can't for, I mean, the, the classic example is exculpation of tort liability, which you can do up to a point, but you can't do too far. You can't exculpate intentional wrongdoing in your contract. You can't exculpate wrongdoing on behalf of order that's going to hurt, that's going to hurt minors. Uh, you can't exculpate uh, liability in some sort of professional fields. Makes perfect sense, right? Like we just are worried about the, the, the ability of the parties to sort of create big classes of external harm. Here, there's nothing wrong with having a baby show. I mean, it might, it might, it might be part of the eugenics campaign, which is not ideal, but um, there's nothing wrong about the show in general. And then something changes, and all of a sudden, doing of the contract occasions risk to third parties, and the court says, well, that's enough to walk away. Well, all kinds of contracts potentially create harm to third parties. I mean, contract is just tort with planning. And so, you know, the the... The, the field of contracts is one contract after another where the parties are being selfish and not thinking a lot about the harm they do. You know, in tort law, there's a lot of talk about the factory, you know, the factory which produces money for the factory owner but creates pollution to the external environment. Well, that factory was a result of a set of contracts. The contracts in which the, the employees of the factory and the, and the factory or the, provi- the provider of this, the provider of the smokestack and the factory, all of those contracts ignore the third party effects. And the question from Hanford is, how how far do you want to drive this bus, this external effects health bus? And the majority basically is like, drive it as long as you want, so long as the underlying activity is not school. <laughs> I mean, you can, yeah. So today happens to be the, I believe today's opening day of Major League Baseball. Is that? Um, I, 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 don't, I don't know. That, I'm a huge fan, but I'm, I have like three hours a day where I'm allowed to do things that are not childcare. <laughs> um, which, which raises a question to me about whether the majority's maybe views its limiting principle as something to do with what the, uh, with, un, with the unexpected nature of the public policy problem, with what the parties would have agreed to. Um, had they known that this was going to be a thing. Like, I do think that um, an, an epidemic, uh, the first epidemic, no less, of um, 
is a, is a different problem. Than, than, the second, than the second one. Well, than the one that you're ostensibly planning around. Yes, I mean, I, I'm sh I'm sure that's true. I'm sure I'm sure the fact that like no one had ever thought this was possible. I mean, this is why the you know the COVID stuff feels so urgent right now because we hadn't had a pandemic, and even though contracts did talk about epidemics and kind of I mean it's sort of thrown in there in contracts all the time before March of 2020, no one really thought, no one really contemplated what that would look like in a serious way. And so a lot of contract doctrine is based on sort of enforcing the explicit and implicit expectations of the parties. And when you have something that really rocks their world, you're left kind of without easy guideposts. And one answer is you just leave the parties where they are, sort of like mistake doctrine. You know, yep. which we're going to get to later in the semester. You know, if the parties made some big mistake, which is why impracticability is a good argument for you or frustration. These things really happen. You didn't have contemplation of them. You couldn't. It's not fair to attribute their the, the to the parties a particular risk assessment. You just leave leave the losses where they are. You leave the parties where they are as if the contract had never had never happened. And it has this case has that sense. I guess I'd say. Um, where the court just like I don't know, you know, on, on what basis uh, from consent would I take money from one party to the other? Yep. I mean, in the past when I've taught public policy cases, and I have to say I have not taught many public policy cases in the last couple of years, but they've been cases that involved reproduction. Reproduction, so it's been surrogacy or um, a, a contract for the. Um, uh, for breach of a basically vasectomy. This is this is this is you admitting that you used to use Randy Barnett's casebook, and <laughs> and now not feeling great about that choice. Basically, I am one hundred percent not going to say that on this podcast. I had a great seven year run. I had, a great, ten, I had a great I had a great ten year run to be moved into my hallway, <laughs> and. Yeah, I will take that resource. The, the Randy Barnett's book, uh, which is now Randy Barnett and Nate Open's book, um, has this amazing first case. Uh, it's just... You talking about Shaheen versus Knight? Yeah, Shaheen versus Knight. I mean, actually, the case book is full of pretty stupendous selections, to be perfectly fair. And, and so Shaheen versus Knight is this vasectomy case. And, you know, it's, it's quite a way to start a semester in a lot of... I mean, it's got really spicy facts that oh. are... That I think lots of people can dig into, you know, underneath those facts, there's some stuff that's hard to deal with. No, and, but, but so, that, but so it's a, it's a case where a, where a father says, you know, I have, I, you know, I, I had a contract to get a vasectomy and now I have a fifth child. So the vasectomy didn't work. And so pay me. And so pay me, yeah. And the court basically says, yeah, that's a breach of contract, but like, no, we are not going to get involved in that. Mm -hmm. And I, and I, I mean, I, pretty, I like hearing your sort of description of this. Or we're going to we're going to let this lie as the court's response. Like, it's almost like a, I don't really know what the real sort of I don't really know actually where the equities lie here based on the underlying assent of the parties. But what we're going to do is just back away. Mm -hmm. like, like, I don't want to touch like, images. Yeah, right. It's almost like that GIF online where like um, Homer Simpson sort of backs into the hedge, and you know, <laughs> I mean it has that feeling of like I don't want to be here. Let's not even talk about this anymore. 
No, exactly. Um, the difference between a case like that and this one, or a difference for me at least, is that presu presumably the, the underlying sort of subject matter of the contract was known to the parties from the, 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 the breach was the kind of breach you would expect. Yeah. It wasn't for, right. It, was, it wasn't for any reason that you would, um, that you would, um, th that would sort of blow away the expectations of the parties. Right. And I, yes. And part of what's happening here is I'm wondering if there's public policy to me, I really have the urge to have one of these sort of late coming facts issues doctrines be doing some of the work because it's the court saying we can't enforce this because it's bad for public policy, but they mean we can't enforce it now. Not we can't, we couldn't ever have enforced it. I, I mean, I, I agree that it's not quite public policy and it's not quite impracticability. It's not quite frustration. It's not quite impossibility. And so, you know, in the, in the article, which I've written with, with Kathy Wong of, of Virginia, um, called the social costs of contract, you know, we basically say it's, it's like a species of public policy. It's a weird thing where the public policy is not evident at the time of the contract, but it also is not increasing the costs of the parties. It's, it's like a newly discovered external harm. Um, and I, I would, you know, I'd say in the article, we try to find more examples like Hanford, and we don't actually find that many, to be perfectly frank. Um, you know, there, there's, there's this terrible case, which goes the other way, which is these people are building a stadium um, uh, in the 1920s, architect goes to the, the, um, the builder and says, you know, I've actually discovered this, the, the grandstand's going to collapse. And the builder says, yeah, that's not good. And um, that's, I think, I think it's the, unless the stadium owner know, a stadium owner's like, well, I don't want to pay you anymore. Let's just stop right now because of all this risk. Builder says, no, I'm ready to go forward on the plans that we agreed to. And the court says, yep, that sounds about right. I mean, they did agree to the plans. And the fact that like this is going to cause this stadium collapse with thousands of people dying is sort of unfortunate. I mean, it's obviously unfortunate, but it's not a reason to walk away from the contract. And, and is and, that? And, yeah, sorry. And I mean, it could be that because that was a knowable, it was discoverable at the time of the contract, and this is not. And I mean, you can certainly slice this stuff thin. You know, is it an unexpected new public health risk? How severe? Is it, I mean, there's another case where people are transporting um, uh, goods across a frozen lake in Alaska, and the, um, it turns out the lake didn't freeze. In years past, it had frozen plenty. This year, it didn't freeze well enough. They have like two trips where people die, and they don't take a third trip. And the question is whether or not, they, they can't make an impracticability argument. They can't make an impossibility argument. They basically say like, this is just too risky. It's too scary for public health. And the court says, uh, yeah, in that case, we're gonna, you don't have to put your life on the line to, to fulfill a contract. That's a good excuse. And the, the court's willingness to take this sort of health risk, this late arriving health risk stuff is, I mean, it's, it's, it's not, um, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't say it's law, it's not really law-ish. I mean, the contours of that doctrine seem to be extremely um, fuzzy. It's, it's also, It's hard to it's hard for me to parse a court's rhetoric here because it's not necessarily that the court is saying that you, is, is dealing with the health risks per se. I mean, we're sort of back into a tort world where the question is just who who pays, right? It's not that they were going to say you guys have to cross the ice. I take it, 
right? Uh, well, I mean, and, and the thing about Hanford, maybe just the, the talk is really loose. They say, we will not require the performance or require payment yeah. if there's a health risk. And, and is that partially because they think, I mean, so, okay, so here, so is, is it, do they partially think that maybe that they're, that they don't want to be party to sort of changing the incentives for this Good Samaritan fair, fairground or whatever? Right, saying, right. Yeah. right, right. I mean, I think that like, if you say you have to perform or pay a contract that causes people to have health effects, you're more likely to cause performance. So, you know, the example kind of is, you know, if you say to the college, you're gonna have to pay full tuition, you're gonna have to, you're gonna have to give um, uh, refunds, full refunds, if you don't hold classes in person, the college is gonna be more likely to hold classes in person. Because they get at least, you know, they have happier students. It's more benefit. They don't, they don't, they don't have, they don't take on the, the public health risk. They get to externalize those costs and get to capture the benefits. And so if you make people, if you, if you make people pay the value of their performance, they're just going to do the performance, I think. I mean, not all the time, but some of them. Or like, or if you have a wedding where the, the, you know, the question is whether or not you have to hold the wedding or not. And the, the venue says, I don't want to allow you to have the wedding here. And, and you basically say, well, in that case, just pay me everything, you know, pay me the full value. Well, then the venue might have the wedding causing the health risk to eventuate. Maybe not, but that's the, that's the worry. I mean, so one, so do you have a, do you have a view about how much it matters here that these are babies? Uh... I mean, it has, has. I mean, it matters. I mean, they're not. They can't. I mean, their parents can. Well, they can't. Like, what are our options in terms of liability waivers? <laughs> I'm not sure the liability waivers were a technology that had been invented in 1916. Um, that does feel like the kind of thing that you had to be a post World War II realist to have thought of. Um, I mean, sh it, it is the case that like the public policy arguments always end up being stronger when there's minors involved um, because they're just, you know, children of the future. This feels like a good moment to break out in a song. Um, uh, Please feel free. Oh, no, it's okay. I don't, I don't know the rest of the words. Um, uh, I, but I think we do, we do believe that children are our future. And so the, um, the, the public policy stuff in cases where there are infants is, is stronger. I mean, you can't have waivers of liability for your kids as you have said many times when you bring them to, um, to, to trampoline places. Um, I did. And I, and I also think that like, by the way, the risk feels higher. So the other class of promises that I've talked about or thought about or written about is sort of non-disclosure agreements and whether or not non-disclosure agreements that cover up sexual harassment are, are, or should be enforceable. And the best case I had in that context was a nurse, um, basically killed his patients. I mean, he, he was reckless with his patients in a hospital and he is going to be fired. But instead of being fired, he reaches a deal with his hospital where he's going to quit and there's going to be a non-disclosure agreement about what he had done. So everyone sort of like walks away with a non-disclosure agreement. He then goes to another hospital, like right down the street to be employed. The new hospital says, you seem great. You really seem amazing. Why don't we just um, and they call his employer to do like a check. And the employer is like, uh, I don't know that you should hire him. And he sues the old employer for breach of contract. And the old employer is like, I was just trying to save patients, vulnerable population. And the court, although actually 
the court says he gets to win. The court goes off into high dudgeon about how contracts shouldn't be hiding risks to vulnerable people. And the more vulnerable you are, the less likely we should be to enforce contracts that are going to cause harm to a, a vulnerable population. And for us, this is a great, this was a great case to help make the argument that non-disclosure agreements within organizations with sexual predators ought not to be ought not be enforceable for sort of the exact same sort of through line set of reasons, which is contracts shouldn't be covering up public hazards. And whether those public hazards are old public hazards or newly emergent public hazards, contract law only works if it serves the public. Do you think that this case looks any different if it's Babyland that fails, not Connecticut fairgrounds? I mean, it's sort of like saying, do I think that Baby M ends up differently if uh, the parents are the ones who don't want to adopt? Great, sure. I, I was asking you. You seem like you had just taught that case more recently than I have. <laughs> no, no, I guess I'm thinking about what the, the fairground only really has one thing to say, right? Which is basically like, we can't be party to this. Candyland, baby link, baby land. <laughs> Candyland. That's amazing. That's a board game. It Not. is a board game. Yes. And, and kind of a dumb one, to be perfectly frank. It's, yeah. We've played a lot of board games these last couple months. Not Candyland, luckily, my kids are too old. I think uh, all of my people just agreed on the rules of Uno, which has been a big hit this <laughs> Somebody gifted us Settlers of Catan. Catan. Great. And we keep trying to do it. And every time we try to do it, my son who's 13 is like, it's going to take four hours. We don't have time. <laughs> we can't. Commit. Can I just make a, a suggestion um, from my law school experience, which is access and allies is something that can take like weeks. So good. And that's just to set up, that's just to set up the board. Not even, to, not even to play I don't, it. No, but, but we don't, I don't want that. I, I just think that if I if I don't, want, I, if, to play, I don't no, want to play board games over weeks. If, no, you're not one, playing the board. You're okay, not playing the board game over weeks. Rummy, bam! Everyone no, back no. to your own thing. No, you misunderstand. You're not playing the game over weeks. That's just putting the pieces on the board. Putting the pieces on the board is a multiple hour experience for Axis of Allies, and I think there's real value there. Anyway, you were saying, Candyland. <laughs> I was saying that Babyland potentially had resort to a bunch of other helpful facts. The babies won't come. That'd be the big. That part. would be and our insurance be, provide our insurance is telling. I mean, they have frustration. They have impracticability arguments that 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 right. The fair doesn't have. But the fair doesn't our, have. Our, right, our costs just go way up. The fair doesn't have those arguments. I mean, I mean, maybe they have insurance maybe arguments. They have insurance but argument, right, maybe right. they have insurance arguments. Although, like. No one believes it. Even Tom Baker doesn't believe that like insurance markets are going to react that quickly. Oh, really? I mean, we could ask him. We'll put him on the podcast and ask him whether or not in the case of a... He is teaching a, contracts. And he's learning about... He's doing a whole project about how insurance is reacting to COVID. So he is exactly our guy. But if I were Tom Baker, if I was just a really reasonable person, I would say, I don't think that the fair has as good impracticability arguments as Candyland does. Yeah. Babyland. Sure. <laughs> do you believe 
I guess do you? I guess the real question I have is like, do you believe in this case? So I was about to say like, um, I believe in the case for the purposes of my, my essay. I believe in it a lot. <laughs> yeah. and I believe in it in case this podcast comes out before the essay has been accepted or rejected by law reviews. Yes, I believe in the case. <laughs> I think the case stands for a deep principle, one of those like deep magic principles in American law that's rarely articulated. Um, and so I believe in it. I think the question is like, my guess is approximately 195% of contract exams um, in December are going to be test testing COVID. Maybe even 200% of them. I think many people are gonna have multiple different COVID questions of various sorts. Um, you know, there's been a force majeure clause. There's a, there's a liquidated damages clause. There's a impracticability problem. There's an interpretation problem about whether pandemic influenza is covers COVID because COVID's not an influenza. And yet pandemic influenza was a really common term in force majeure contracts before March, 2020. Um, there's like a trillion different COVID problems. And the question I would wanna take this case and ask is like, do we think that courts ought to be permitting the parties to, um, to infuse their performance with public health concerns. Not always just to walk away, but can they, can they interpret their agreements in ways that aid the public's health? Can they change the amount of money that they owe? Can they change their, um, their performance obligations? And I guess I wanna say like, I bet that in 1915, if you'd asked the Connecticut Supreme Court, they would have said the answer to that question was no. And in 1925, if you asked them, they would have said the answer to that was no. That there is something like at the height of the epidemic or in a moment where we've got lots of social disruption, courts are kind of up for strange arguments that don't normally play. And in the essay, we basically say there's like a canon of contract law. And in the, the canon of contract law, you ignore third party effects. You know, you just, you, you let the parties decide what's good for them and you give them the bargain that they've agreed to, including their risk allocation. And then there's an anti-canon of contract law. Like sometimes there's really insane inflation or there's a war or there's an epidemic. And for the couple of years where that's happening, you gotta kind of expect odd results from courts. And it's part because the courts are unsettled, just like we're all unsettled. I mean, we're doing this recording in part right now because we have no idea what the fall is going to look like. And it could be that the people listening to this recording would be like, wow, you guys really overreacted there. Seems like it all just went back to normal as soon as the vaccine was discovered in mid-August. Um, or it could be that things are way worse and the recording is going to feel irrelevant because it's too normal. I think courts are in the same position. You know, the courts are lagged. Their, their decisions are lagged on the events, but they're still proximate to it. So the people who wrote this decision in Connecticut two years before had been struck by a terrifying baby paralysis epidemic, which, I mean, my, my dad is, is sort of still old enough to have sort of had friends with polio in the 40s when he, he was born in 1938. Yeah, my, my, dad, my dad's brother, my dad had, uh, yes, his brother had polio and... Um, but what my dad expresses, it's like fear. Like all of a sudden you had to like avoid the pools or avoid going outside. Yep. Yep. And no one really knew what the ideology of the disease was. And I think like, do I think this represents contract law? No. But do I think that courts might be up for something like this in the next yep. 18 to 36 months? Yeah, I do think they're up for things like this. I do. I do think, I, th I mean, yep. you already, I think you already see it. 
The, one of the one of the fears that I think falls away for courts and for and for readers in this case, it, it, sorry, in a in like a epidemic context, is the fear that the parties are going to be using public health stuff in a sort of dis, disingenuous or right. You're not as worried about about whether or not it's the well, without those sort of excuses. So I, I to, to draw a, a sort of a silly analogy, I think many of us had things that got canceled for COVID where we were like, well, <laughs> that seems fine. I actually did not want to go to that particular dinner, right? Yep. And, and you say, ah, I don't think it's safe. But it is true. You don't think it's safe, but also like, you don't, you don't want to go anyway. I mean, this is really like how antisocial people talk to each other. <laughs> like our social friends are like, I lost all of these opportunities to see people. Well, the people who listen to podcasts are like, yeah, that's, that really does resonate. <laughs> Just another great set of reasons not to have to go out with friends. Like there's someone like running on a treadmill right now. who's like, yeah, it's so true. I totally agree. I am. I'm speaking to you now from my first 24 hours of solitude in five months. And may I just say, yeah, yeah. Value of solitude is extremely high. And so I can't actually remember how I felt about solitude in March, but um, I suspect I still wanted some of it. Yeah. But in a context, but so maybe one of the things, I mean, the court doesn't, I wish the court would be a little bit more upfront, I guess, about how shocking the situation is. That's what I wish. Wish the court would say, this is unprecedented. These unprecedented times, as we all write in our email. They, they literally said, said disease proved fatal in a large proportion of cases permanently crippled, many of those afflicted. Well, that's very, I agree that's very bad, but like you can describe any number of risks that way. That's just sort of a clinical description of the actual risks. I'm saying for the court to say like, compared to normal life, this is super weird. Nobody saw it coming and it's totally upended everything about everyday life. I hear you. It, I mean, it would, it would help. It, it, the, when I asked if you stand by the opinion, I, part of my question was like, how, was sort of how far do you think it goes, right? They described yeah. the, the majority driving the bus and what, driving the bus like right on through the barriers. Mm -hmm. But the, that doesn't seem right. The part with the- seem, It doesn't seem good actually, no. Yeah, sorry, that seems bad. Um, my point is the, you see the court saying, this is really bad. Public health is really important, and we're gonna and we're gonna take that seriously. But I have to say that you actually could write a pretty compelling. This is bad. Public health is serious. Opinion for probably a lot of stuff. And yes. I want and I and one of the ways you can you can introduce a limiting principle is by being clear about uh, the fact that you're in extraordinary circumstances. I just like I, I don't think that judges in 1918 were like sufficiently realist to be doing that kind of stuff. Yeah. I think that I think that like the the prevailing account of what judges did was they applied rules and they refined law down to its pure essence. Now, obviously that's not I mean that's it's it's a, it's a caricature, right? But I don't think that you could imagine a judge saying we are really in quite a situation here in 1918. By the way, it's World War One, And also, we now have another epidemic on top of the whole first epidemic. And, and I don't know if you understand this, but we didn't even join, we're not even 100% part of the League of Nations yet. 
The world's on fire down here. Okay, look at, listen. But this is this. When's Jacob and Young's? Jacob and Young's is three years later. It's Cardozo. Yeah. There's that's a fire of genius moment, guy. That that's the. So you're saying that this court is purely formless in the old ways, but Cardozo is a. What, literally, what he said is, you know, the modern trend. Yeah, so maybe this court's part of the modern trend. No, it's not part of the modern trend. He's he is the modern trend. He is a one person on trend guy, and what his whole thing is to make you feel angry at these formalist judges who can't even admit to themselves who they are. That's why he's he's so great. Is that he pulls you along, and is seductive in that particular that particular way. I, I agree. When you, I think I was, if we were to see a court today do this. What they would say is, look, it's an extremely strange time to be alive. And we're going to do something today we don't usually do. And the thing we're going to do is we're going to allow people to walk away out of their contract because it's going to, otherwise it's going to really cause big public health problems, even though our, you know, our state has refused to act. Act. Yep. Yep. And that, I mean, right. That's right. Right. Yeah. And I do. I mean, do, do I find that more compelling as a way to do writing? Yeah, I think I would find it more compelling as a way to do writing. But the answer is the same. No, I mean, but I, but I was suggesting that. I mean, I wasn't saying like I wish that the pros here were different. I was saying like, yeah, you can, you can. It's easier to get on board with the public policy exception when right. you well, when wait, it wait, framed as yeah. This is why I wrote the essay to say like there's an anti-canon. Like the the essay basically is like. You know what? All these cases, they seem really bad. In, I mean, they all seem unpredictable and wrong, but that's kind of the point. Yeah. They're, they're just, there is a theme where sometimes judges are going to allow public health to matter. And it's not that surprising ex ante, even if it's not predictable. No, it's not that surprising ex post, even if it's, that, even if it's not predictable ex ante. You know, really, really, really dangerous stuff that the parties really probably didn't anticipate. And they act kind of in an emergency situation where the government probably should have acted. You know, you've got government failure and you've got rapid movement and you get, you know, you get a half loaf answer. You get a half, uh, incompletely theorized, um, yeah. incomplete theorized sort of solutions. That, uh, that does also mean to keep the babies out of the room. That keep the babies out of the room. Yeah. Right. That get you the answer that you want. The public health answer that you need yeah. through not particularly well worked out theory yeah i mean i would yes i've always described the public health sorry the public um policy exceptions as being like a parachute an inject button in a parachute like ah right yeah right yeah yeah that's exactly right i mean in some ways in some ways pandemic or uh, uh, cases like this in some ways help give it a little bit of structure right Uh, i mean the idea yes so like the the good thing about this decision is it's really easy to imagine how this helps the court look good. Yeah. You know, what are they going to say? You know, you should have, you didn't have to bring the babies, but you have to pay for the value of the babies. I mean, there's just, it's really hard to write an opinion for Candyland or for Babyland and do so in a way that's going to make the court seem anything other than sort of unfeeling and legalistic. Pretty interesting. It would be pretty interesting to see how many cases end up being about babies that where the court says yes to the public. I mean, it's not the same, right? The, the baby issue is not the same here as in a surrogacy contract no. or in a vasectomy contract. It's really right. different. On the other hand, 
Like you have the, babies, all of the all the tort waiver stuff. Yeah, babies may be a, a, a babies may be a reminder of courts that they have that they have the eject button available to them. I mean, I can see a Yale Law Journal article that just is called babies, and then just see what happens from there. Oh my God, I can't believe you said this in a public forum because now someone else is going to take it in my babies article. <laughs> I have in mind like five people who I think are totally willing to write that article too. I'm not one of those people, but I can imagine someone would be willing to write that article. The law of babies. The law of babies. Yeah. The law of babies. I'm really going to have to think about that one. I can. <laughs> All right. All right. Great. Well, um, I encourage people to go and, and read my way to try to make sense of this article. Um, uh, this, 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 um, this case, but I do think whether this case or another, the subject of what to do when epidemic changes contractual obligation is going to be on basically everyone's exam. Probably not ours because we have no idea what's going to be on our exam, but like certainly like uh, Polk Wagner's exam at Penn Law. <laughs> almost, almost certainly has to be. And, and probably Tom Baker's exam too is going to have baby. It's going to have this on like three times speed. <laughs> <laughs> We should probably slip Paul Wagner. <laughs> All right, Dave. Next time. Thank you.